Hi everybody, it's Steve Weir, Grace Point's Pastor of Arts and Communication, and I'm here to say welcome, or welcome back, to the Grace Point Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or on our YouTube channel. Feel free to check out our website for all the latest information about everything going on here at Grace Point. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. Um, You know, it's hard to follow a leader that you don't trust, particularly if you see that leader kind of cave during times of of pressure. You just learn that you really can't trust them. There's There's a really great contrast in this regard between two kings of Israel, King Saul and King David. So King Saul was the first king of Israel, and he started off really well. He's, he's tall, he's impressive looking, he has a few wins in battle. And then comes a day when he is waiting for Samuel to come. Samuel has told him, I'm going to come in seven days. And, and, and so seven days are passing, nothing's happening, Saul's not, or Samuel's not showing up. And so his men start to get really nervous. In fact, it says they're, they're quaking with, with fear. And because they're, they're facing this opposing army and everything, and Samuel's going to come and offer sacrifice. And Saul, instead of calmly reassuring his troops, is just kind of quaking with fear along with them. And so they just start scattering. They start going crazy. And then Samuel finally shows up, and the whole thing is just really ugly. It means the end of, of King Saul's dynasty and, and so forth. So that's, that's a bad way for a leader to handle being under pressure. Now contrast that with David, who has these men with him and is actually running for his life from Saul, and he is, he's hiding in caves. He is, is desperately running for his life. And yet all along the way, he has this calm confidence because he just trusts the Lord with his future. And so which kind of leader do you want to follow? I mean, you can read all about that. You can read about Saul's downfall there in, in 1 Samuel 13. You can read about David as you read deeper into Samuel. We're actually going to study David later on this, this year. But which kind of leader would you want to follow? You've probably had the experience of following someone who is not reliable, not trustworthy. Maybe, maybe they're pretty good most of the time. But then when the heat is really on and the pressure comes, then they just kind of make these kind of crazy decisions or they just kind of withdraw and go into their office and just stay far away from everybody. I mean, that, that kind of a leader, it's, it's really hard to follow. Hopefully you've had the experience of following, whether you know, it's a teacher or a coach or, or a boss. Maybe you've had the experience of following someone who, when the pressure is high, they really step up. And so it really inspires your confidence. Here's my question for you this morning. What is your experience following Jesus? What is it like for you to follow Jesus? How much trust is there? See, our mission as a church is to help more people become fully committed followers of Jesus, fully committed followers of Jesus. It's hard to follow someone if you don't trust them. And the degree to which you trust Jesus is the degree to which you will follow him. And so it's, it's really vital for us to, to trust 
him. And um, some of you may not trust him at all. Some of you may be here for, for the first time. Maybe you are just exploring faith and you really don't know Jesus too well. It's really hard to, to follow someone if you don't know them. And it's hard to trust them if you don't know them. So some of you may be just at the beginning of your journey or just exploring this. And if that's the case for you, then I'm really glad you're here because this is a good place to learn more about Jesus so you can learn to trust him. Many of us, though, have been following Jesus for a long time, and there's kind of a limit to our trust level. There, there's a limit. Like, we'll, we'll follow him so far, but then it starts to get a little bit fuzzy for us, and we're not quite sure, is Jesus going to follow through on the things that he promised to do? And how is he going to handle things when life gets really difficult, when the heat is really on? See, if, if we don't trust Jesus deeply and fully, then it's going to be really hard to follow him when he asks us to do something that takes us out of our comfort zone, which he will ask us to do at times. It's going to be really hard to trust him when the heat is really on. Is he going to be able to handle the pressure that's coming my way? This morning, we're going to look at a passage where we see how Jesus handles himself when he is under pressure and hopefully this will help you decide if he is someone that you can trust enough to follow. If you would take a Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 20. It's where we're going to be as we continue in this series. We're looking at the final week of, of Jesus. And Jesus has reached Jerusalem after a very, very long journey through most of the gospel of Luke. He's reached Jerusalem, and now the conflict and the, the drama is really heating up. And so we'll start here in verse 19 with some drama. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people." So we've been saying the last few weeks that it's, it's a good thing to ask your Bible questions. And just reading this verse kind of out of the blue, we should ask the question, what parable? He told this parable against them. Well, the parable that Steve talked to us about last week and taught last week, it's, it's a parable, a story of God as the owner of a vineyard who has very wicked and rebellious tenants who are who are living on that vineyard, and the, the landowner God is sending people to collect the, the rent that he is due, and they are, they are rebellious. They will not pay it. And they're not only wicked and rebellious, they're, they're just kind of dumb. They're kind of illogical, because when the son of the landowner comes, they think that by killing him, they're somehow going to receive the inheritance that was going to him. It's very strange, kind of illogical thinking. But the, the, the religious leaders are listening to that parable, and they recognize he's talking about us. And so, verse 19 they sought to lay hands on him. They sought to come against him because they perceived that he told this parable against them, but they feared the people. See, Jesus is challenging their authority. I mean, they're the religious leaders. They're the ones who tell people what God is like, and he's challenging their authority. He is misleading people. From their perspective, Jesus is misleading people, and he's drawing their affections and their attention away from them. Like, they really want people following them, 
And here Jesus has got them all stirred up. So they got to get rid of him. But Jesus is so popular with the people that they know if they were to, to take him down, take him out, then they're going to be in trouble with the people. So they feel trapped. They've got to get rid of him, but they can't do it because it's going to make them look bad. So they feel trapped. What do they do? They decide to try to trap Jesus. In fact, we're going to see two traps that they, they lay here. This one, the first one. In verse 20, it says, So they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So here's their plan. They, they can't get rid of Jesus themselves because they'll look bad to the people. But if they can get Jesus in trouble with the Romans, then the Romans can take him away and then the Romans will be the bad guys. And they'll get to go on in their status with the people. The Romans will be the bad guys. The Romans are already bad guys. So this is a perfect plan for them. And so they lay a trap with a brilliant question. But first, they kind of spread on some flattery. Verse, verse 21, they, they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Okay, they start with some flattery. Here. Okay, beware of flattery. Okay, I know it feels good when somebody just lays it on thick. I know it feels really good. But Proverbs 29.5 says, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. There's nothing good that comes from, from flattery. So just, just let it roll right off of you and go on believing what's true, which is that you are not as perfect as somebody is telling you. So they start with this flattery, and then they lay the trap Verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Is it lawful for us to pay our taxes to Caesar? This is a brilliant question because the religious leaders know that the people hate taxes. They hate taxes. They may love Jesus, but they hate taxes, and they probably hate taxes more than they love Jesus. And so if Jesus says... Yes, you should pay your taxes, then his poll numbers are probably going to drop because they hate paying taxes. They, it's burdensome. They're, they're giving taxes to this corrupt government. I mean, what the government wants to do with their taxes is expand their domination of the world. And besides that, the, the leaders, the emperors are all, they're like perverts in their private lives. I mean, it's like they're feeding money into this terrible machine, and so they hate taxes. So if Jesus says, pay your taxes, that's not going to be good. It could even be a riot, because people could be like, man, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I thought he was supposed to be the Messiah. I mean, because Jerusalem this week is a powder keg. I mean, the, things are on edge because Jesus has got people stirred up and excited about him. The religious leaders really are opposed to him. Meanwhile, it's Passover week, so there's all these people flooding in for Passover. The Romans are always on edge when there is a Jewish festival because there's so many people and everybody is all fired up and everybody's tense. It's a powder keg. And so if Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes, that's probably not going to be good. If he says, no, don't pay your taxes, then the Romans are going to be upset with him. 
possibly there could be a riot again from that because this, that could be the spark that lights the powder keg because people are just waiting for him to become the Messiah and set himself up and overthrow the Romans. And the Romans are going to have to squelch that. And this, what's he going to do? Wow. It's a brilliant trap. But these people have no idea who they're dealing with. Verse 23. Jesus perceived their craftiness. And he said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. All right, let's pause there for a second and talk about denarius. Okay, denarius was the primary currency of the empire at this time. It was worth about a day's wage. So a denarius, this, this is an actual denarius. This is uh, Tiberius was the emperor. At this, at this point. And so this is a Tiberius denarius. We actually had that coin in this room last year uh, when Michael Suderman was here. Some of you were here for Michael Suderman, and he brought this along. It had nothing to do with what he was talking about, but he passed it around because it was really cool. And I asked him, I texted him this week, and said, could you come this weekend and bring your denarius? And he couldn't come. But anyway, so we have a picture of it here. But this is a picture of Tiberius. And here's what the inscription says on this coin. Tiberius Caesar, worshipful son of the god Augustus. Tiberius is promoting himself as a son of God. And then if you flip the coin over, on the other side is the Roman goddess Pax. And the wording there says high priest. So Tiberius is setting himself up as a son of God, Augustus, and the high priest of peace. We know who the real son of God and the real prince of peace is, but this is how Tiberius wants everyone to think of him. And this coin is everywhere all the time throughout the empire. And it is more than a currency. It's propaganda. Because keep in mind, in the Roman Empire, there, there's no newspapers, there's no internet, there's no billboards to put your message out. So how do you get a message out to everyone everywhere? You put it on money because that's the thing that goes everywhere. It's a reminder of the power of Rome. And so Jesus says, show me a denarius. Let's pull one out here. I want it in front of you. And he says, what, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And so he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. He slips out of the trap. See, Jesus does two things here. He, he upholds the right of governments to collect taxes. If you were hoping he was going to say something else, then I'm, I'm sorry, but this is what he says. And Paul reinforces that um, several decades later in Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. 
For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is remarkable wording here because by the time Paul is writing, Nero is the emperor. And if Tiberius was corrupt and a pervert, Nero was like 10 times as bad. And listen to what Paul says, he says, the authorities are ministers of God? Really? But there is the sovereignty of God, that we may have corrupt governmental leaders, but God superintends over that, and he is able to bring good out of even their leadership. And so the the message here uh, is not Paul and Jesus saying, Pay your taxes if your government does good things with the taxes. That's not what they're saying. They're they're saying you you pay your taxes. You are an inhabitant. You're a citizen of planet Earth. And I've established governments here to help you. And so you pay your taxes to them. You're responsible to do that. But there's something else. Jesus embeds a secret message in his response that... The the Jewish people will understand, but it will go completely over the heads of the Romans. Let's look at 24 again. Show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have. The word likeness is the Greek word icon, which, of course, we get our word icon from. It's the same word that shows up in the Greek translation of Exodus chapter 20, Verses four, verse 4, which is the second commandment out of 10, which says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness, there's the same word, of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. See, the denarius was meant to carry a carved image and likeness across the empire that people were to worship, they were to give their allegiance to. And Jesus' answer here is, give your money to Rome. That's, That's secondary. You give your primary allegiance to God alone. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. What is God's is your primary allegiance. You shall have no other God before him. And so by extension, if we are giving God our top allegiance, then we are giving Jesus our top allegiance because he has come now as the king. Just a few days before this, he's riding in to Jerusalem uh, on, on this donkey And Jesus, we see here, is a king worthy of your trust. He's a king worthy of of our trust. We talked about trust, trusting our leaders at the beginning. Jesus is worthy of our trust because, number one, I mean, he escapes this brilliant trap. I mean, don't you want to know that when your leader is under pressure and people are coming against him, that he can be calm, unflustered, and come back with such a, a brilliant 
response. And Jesus' enemies are coming at him, and they're going to keep coming at him, and the pressure is going to increase all during this week until we get to the point where it ends in crucifixion. And Luke wants us to know, as we are reading the story, and he wants all of anyone who is considering following Jesus to know, that when the chips are down, and it looks like Jesus has been backed in the corner, he's not in a corner. He is still 100% in control through every detail of everything that happens through this coming week, all the way up to and including crucifixion and death and being put into a tomb. Jesus is a king. Somebody who can do that is worthy of our trust. There's a second trap, and I have to move faster on this one, but that's okay because this one is easier. Verse 27, there came to him some Sadducees, which these are Sadducees, these are from a completely different group of religious leaders. They have a different set of theology. They deny, as verse 27 goes on, they deny that there is a resurrection. And so they asked Jesus a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, let's pause there for a second. This is known as a leveret marriage. This was a provision in the, the Old Testament law. So that land could be preserved in a family and would not move from one family to another. That was the whole thinking behind this. Because if a man died and they had not produced an heir, then there was a danger that that woman might marry a man from another family. And then the land might get transferred to that. And and God didn't want that to happen. He wanted the land staying right in those families, down those family lines. And so this was a protection for that. So, verse 29, here's the story. The, the question that the Sadducees have. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman died and likely was relieved and said, wow, that nightmare is over, finally. Verse 33, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. So this is the Sadducees. This this is their stock question to show how ridiculous the idea of resurrection is. They they don't believe in a resurrection. So they're saying, yeah, Jesus, so how does this work if, if people live again? I mean, whose wife is she going to be? Jesus, again, is too smart for them. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. So the sons of this current age, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the one to come and to the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Okay, let's pause there for a second. Jesus is correcting their theology and he's instructing us about something that He says marriage is for this life and for this age. It's for procreation. It is to keep the race going because we die. And so if there is no procreation, if there's no younger generation to carry things on, then eventually everyone will die and it will be all over. In the age to come, no one dies. And so there's no need for procreation. There's no need for marriage. 
And so he says, it's all going to be different. There won't be marriage. You won't be married to anybody. So you probably have the question, what does that mean then for those of us who are married? What will our relationship be like with our spouse in the next life? And the answer is, I don't know. Because Jesus really doesn't tell us, he doesn't give us that detail. I suspect we're going to know and recognize who our, our spouse was, but we're going to have, it's just going to be, it's going to be different. It's a whole, and whatever it is, it's going to be better than anything we can imagine, because that's just the way God is. So Jesus corrects their theology, but then he goes on, and he says, let's get to the real issue here. The real issue is not what happens with these women and marriage and all that stuff. The real issue is resurrection. Verse 37, but that the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. See, Jesus, again, is... He's a genius. He knows how to respond to these questions. He knows that the Sadducees only respect the first five books of the Bible. We, we sometimes call it the Pentateuch because there's five of them. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're, they're the only books that they regard as authoritative. So Jesus, in, in talking about the resurrection, Jesus could have gone to other places in the Hebrew scriptures. He could have gone to Job, for example, where Job says, even though my skin will decay, yet in my flesh will I see God. He could have gone there, or he could have gone to Psalm 16, where David says, you will not let your Holy One see decay. But Jesus didn't go there because then the Sadducees would have said, we don't believe those books anyway. He went to one of their books. He went right to Exodus, and he went to the scene of Moses and the burning bush, and he appeals to what Moses said, what the, that the Lord is called the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and he is not the, the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus outsmarts the question, and he proclaims the hope of the resurrection, which, incidentally, he is going to take to a whole new level just a few days from now. He is going to, to bring the hope and the reality of resurrection in a way that no one has ever seen before. And the hope and the reality of a bodily resurrection is the core of our, of our hope. It's the core of our faith. If you don't believe that, there's, there's really no hope for us or for our, our future. I had the opportunity uh, a week ago, we were out of town and we were getting a ride to the airport and the driver at the beginning of our ride shared that he had lost something really, really valuable. And I just, I like to watch for opportunities to turn conversations to, to spiritual things. You, you can do this too with, with anybody that you're interacting with. And so I just took the opportunity to say, Hey, could I pray for you about that? I'm a, we, we're people of faith. Could I pray for you about that? Pray that God would restore that valuable thing to you. And like, I'm going out on a limb here because I don't, I don't know if God's going to do that or how that's going to happen or whatever, but I just, I just want to pray with this person. So, so he said, oh, sure. He said, I'm actually a person of faith too, which it turned out, you know, 
his faith is really interesting, which I'll talk about here in a minute. But anyway, I said, let's, let's pray. And uh, I said, why don't you keep your eyes open since you're driving, and then I'll pray. <laughs> and um, so, so we did that. And then, and then it turned into this conversation that went on for an hour like talking about spiritual things. And he was sharing about things that he believed. And, and it turned out he, he at one point came to the point of saying, yeah, and then Jesus died. And, and then his spirit was like scattered all over the world so that now we, we get to experience God's spirit with us personally. And so I was like, I, like, I don't like to just like go after people and just like contradict everything I said. So I, I want to affirm things. So I'm like, um, so I affirmed that, I, so I... I believe that his spirit is with us. His spirit is everywhere. But there's a little piece, and I kept appealing to Scripture because it's like this is what Scripture says and not just what we're making up out of our heads. So I said there's actually something different than what you said that Scripture says that is actually so much better than what you just said. And that is you left out just a little piece there, and that is that Jesus died, and then three days later he rose again. Like he came back to life. And then he sent his spirit and scattered his spirit so that now we have the spirit with us personally. Because the, the hope of resurrection, the hope of being raised in our body, that is the hope that we have for our future. That is the hope that you have when you stand next to a graveside of someone that you love, who loved Jesus. The hope that you have is that we're going to see them again because he's going to raise us in our body. And Jesus affirms that truth. Again, he escapes the traps. And I I love how this ends, verse 39. Some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well. Remember that the scribes were the first group of people, and they didn't like the Sadducees. And so just a minute ago, they're trying to trap Jesus and show how he doesn't know anything. Oh, you've spoken well. Now that you agree with us, just got to love, got to hate the hypocrisy. Verse 40, they no longer dared to ask him any question. Jesus has silenced his opponents, and now he's going to turn the tables with his own question. Verse 41, Jesus said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his Son. Psalm 110 is, uh, was, was known as a messianic psalm. It's talking about the Messiah who is to come. It was an enthronement song. It was psalm. It was saying that the Messiah will be a king. And so Jesus points out something here that's very clear in the psalm, but somehow these religious leaders have either missed it or deliberately ignored it. And it is this, that David, who is Israel's, was Israel's greatest king, I mean, the greatest king they ever knew. The, 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 the kingdom was at its height. It was the largest it ever was. It was the most powerful that it ever was. It was the most respected that it ever was under David. David, who was Israel's greatest king, is going to have a, a descendant who will become the Messiah. He, he will be his son. He will be his descendant. And David, Israel's greatest king, is going to call this Messiah his Lord. He's going to subject himself. He's going to act in deference to him. This is really odd because usually the younger, the the son or the younger, the descendants show respect to the older. And in this case, David is showing respect to the younger. And Jesus is basically saying, 
David calls this Messiah to come, the Lord. Why won't you call him Lord? Why won't you call me Lord? Why won't you respect my authority? Why won't you choose to trust me? And Luke leaves us hanging. There's no, there's no response recorded because he's waiting for our response. This is a question that comes to us. Will, will you and I, like David, defer to the Messiah, Jesus, this Messiah King? He's worthy of your trust. He's able to work his way out to get out of these traps. He, he doesn't get flustered. He doesn't get defensive. He just deflects the arrows that are coming, and he overcomes his enemies. And he's powerful enough to overcome your enemies as well. You, you know your greatest enemy is the adversary, the accuser, Satan, who is the opponent of God, and he tries to get at God through, through us. Jesus is greater than, than your enemy. We have an accuser. We have an adversary. But we have an advocate, Jesus, the advocate, who is greater. He's worthy of our trust. And so today, I would encourage you to choose Jesus as king. Last week, if you were here, Steve's uh, takeaway for us was, was to kind of fill in the blank with, today I choose Jesus over blank. And so I'm just building on that and carrying it forward for, for today. Today I choose Jesus as my king. See, Jesus came as the king of Israel. And the book of Revelation tells us he will return as the king of the new creation, so all of the earth. And he's actually the king of the universe. Jew Jewish people pray a prayer every day to, to bless, before they, they take their food. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, king of the universe. And so the question is, where's your heart? And is he your king? Today's your day to say, today I choose Jesus, my king. Let, let's pray. Father, um, thank you for sending Jesus to us. Thank you that Jesus is a perfect king who will rule in perfect righteousness and, and justice. And he is worthy of our trust because he overcomes enemies. He overpowers them. He outsmarts them. He, is, he, he overcomes our greatest enemy, Satan, and, and he overcomes death and sin. And so, Jesus, there's no one more worthy of being our king than you are. Would you would you give us grace to humble ourselves as David did and call you Lord and follow you wherever you call us? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Make this last song your prayer.